I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. 2022 was a record year for us, and thank you to everyone who made it so, so special. As we record this episode here in March, we are currently recruiting for many of our fall and late spring races. We still have spots available in our Lincoln Marathon, our Grandma's Marathon, which are spring races, as well as our Chicago Half Marathon that happens in the spring, and then many of our fall races. So we've got a lot of stuff going on to help make 2023 better than 2022. We also, for those local here in the Connecticut market or the New York uh, New York City market, I should say as well, because we're, we're not that far from New York City, we have our golf outing coming up on June 5th in Norwalk, Connecticut at Shorehaven Country Club. Come golf with us if you're a golfer. We've got plenty of sponsorship opportunities as well if you own a business. And be sure to look out for many of our virtual events as we record this, our first virtual event for the year, our Purple Patties, um, has just passed us, and we've got another great event coming up in June, our Dino's Double. So make sure to visit our website at projectpurple.org, and also follow us on all your social media platforms to stay up to date with all things Project Purple. Without further ado, let's meet our guest today on our podcast, coming to us all the way from, it's always sunny in Colorado. Colorado has like the most sunny days of, of anywhere in the country. I, I think I read that once. It was like 253 sunny days. Uh, pancreatic cancer survivor, writer and author, James Allison. Welcome to the Project Purple Podcast, James. Thanks, Dino. Thanks for the opportunity to come on your show. Well, as we were talking before I hit record here, um, we were excited to see you on the schedule because I know we had scheduled this a while back. You had gotten ill, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point here in, in the introduction. Uh, but it's always great to have people um, that you know have to reschedule for you know treatments or if they're not feeling great, but come back to us. So um, as I said before we hit record, uh, producer Sam and I were when we were talking about this week's schedule. And uh, I mentioned your name, you know, we both were like, oh, it's so awesome that he's back because that's hopefully a good sign that you're in a better place than where you were, you know, when we originally had this scheduled. So thank you for taking the time for being our guest here on the Project Purple podcast. So as is customary with all of our guests, the first part of our podcast or the first segment I like to say is always a guest opportunity to kind of share their background um, with pancreatic cancer and how they get to our podcast here today as we record this. Um, one thing that I always say to our guests, this is your opportunity to share with our audience. Many people in our audience maybe don't know who you are, your backstory, um, but I always preface it by saying, um, you can stay as high level as you want, or you can go as far down um, as possible. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand the mic over to you to share your backstory with our guests, or with our audience, excuse me. Thanks, James. Okay. Um, so I was working as a bartender and a food server in a couple of restaurants. At one point, I had three jobs. Um, and before that, I worked in IT. I've had all kinds of jobs. But at the at the time, that's what I was doing. And um, I just started to have some, you know, abdominal pain, pretty, pretty typical for pancreatic cancer, nausea. I was losing weight um, because I, I wasn't very hungry or else I was not keeping food down. And then, um, yeah, it was what you have another guest that talked about it's you, you need to pay attention to what goes in your toilet because if it starts to look weird, that's not good. So, and yeah, so it was the color change. And then that, that was the symptom of um, jaund uh, jaundice. And I didn't notice, but I guess my my eyes were pretty yellow. When I went to see my doctor, he, he pointed that out. Um, so it was pretty typical. And then my, my labs were off. My bilirubin was high. Um, so it's kind of classic for people who have that tumor that starts in the head and affects uh, the, the common bile duct where it goes through the pancreas. And I guess we're, we're kind of lucky, those of us who get sick, because at least we, we find out about it. So when were you, when you were starting to have these symptoms, what year, what time of year was that? Oh yeah, that was last summer. So 2022, around 
June, maybe a little bit in May. But in June, you know, I had that experience of um, the toilet and then I, I looked it up and then one of the things that causes that is pancreatic cancer. And I just, I had a kind of a feeling like an intuition that that was what was wrong with me. And I, I knew from my aunt, my mom's sister, that it was bad. Um, she had it, she was a little bit younger than I am now, I think. And, um, it was in her liver right away. And then I think it moved, it got into her lungs. And at one point they told her she had two months and then in two months she, she died. So that was my experience of it. And so right away, I, I kind of thought that, you know, I didn't have a lot of time. Um, but back into the kind of the timeline, uh, I went to my doctor. He sent me to get an ultrasound and that, that wasn't inconclusive. They, you know, they could see that the, the bile duct was blocked and the, the, the other ducts were, they get kind of, um, dilated or they kind of, you know, cause all, the bile has nowhere to go. So things start to kind of swell up like a balloon in a way. So they saw that. They didn't see a tumor. So then they sent me for, uh, let's see, MRI. And then another MRI with contrast. Mm -hmm. And then a CT scan. And I started to question, like, is this really the most efficient way to, <laughs> to do this? Um, and then they did the uh, endoscopic ultrasound, where they go in from the top with the tube. And then they that's when they saw it. They could image it and describe it. And they also took the biopsy. So that was when I finally got di diagnosed and that wasn't until August. So it was like over eight weeks, eight, 10 weeks before. From the first time I, I went to the doctor and when I had a diagnosis. And so they stented my bile duct. So I felt better almost immediately, started to put some weight back on. Um, then I, I went to see the surgeon first for some reason, I think because he was available. And um, let me see the silences. So the surgeon, he wanted to put in my, um, what do you call it, my port right away. And I hadn't talked to anybody about chemo. So I didn't know what the port was for. And uh, he wanted to get me in the two days from that appointment. and. This was when I started to kind of take a little bit of um, adv advocacy for myself. And I said, look, I don't, I'm not ready for that. And to have this thing installed inside me, my body, I don't even know really what it, why I need it. Um, so I didn't, I didn't take that appointment. And then I met the oncologist and he explained why I needed the port to get the chemo, which was Fulfirinox, which was at the time or probably still is the kind of the state of the art or, or um, standard of care. And you can't do that really without a port. This wouldn't work because if you try to put it in your arm, it would do bad things to your vein in your arm and whatnot. So, um, so I went along with, with the plan, which was chemo to shrink the tumor and then um, the Whipple surgery and then more chemo. And the first, so I had four rounds of chemo. Uh, I can't remember the, any of this word they use for it, but it, it doesn't matter. But before well, neoadjuvant, I think they call it like neoadjuvant chemotherapy prior to like surgery. And I think like protocol for minimum, uh, sometimes they do more. Um, I guess if people have like a positive response, I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's data behind that and why they do that. Um, there's enough data out there, but I know that's kind of been like the standard of care, as you said, you know, that, that, you know, they'll pump you with the four, I shouldn't say pump you cause that's probably a bad connotation, but it's basically what happens, but yeah. they administer the, the four rounds of chemotherapy, right? Beforehand they scan you. Okay. Did its job or you know, tumor stable and now they go in and, and sometimes I think even now 
some of the centers actually will do radiation in between the chemo and the operation. And the idea and, and thought process around that where there is data on this is one is reducing the size of the tumor with the radiation, but then two is actually, um, and I've heard this firsthand from surgeons, is that it, actual radiation like toughens up the pancreas. Hmm. So, um, oh. and, and the best analogy that I that I've heard about this is, is like a sponge. Try cutting a sponge, like any household sponge, with a pair of scissors, right? And then trying to stitch that back with thread and a needle. It's it's very difficult because of the the sponge, right? It's so it's such like a dense material. And that's just like how your pancreas is. Like they they equate like the analogy is like the the pancreas has kind of like that that elast not elasticity but that spongy kind of texture. So that's how hard it is to suture you know the pancreas back together. And and also you know a lot of people you know the the Whipple's a, a very evasive surgery to begin with, but it's also super complex, and it's because the pancreas is such a complex organ. Yeah. So that was the word new, new adjuvant, I think. Yeah. And I think of it as like liver, maybe. And my surgeon did say afterward that my liver was, or my pancreas was kind of squishy. And that's not the word he used. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, like a liver, like a piece of liver, if you, you can imagine trying to sew it to something, but if you cook it, then it'd be a lot easier. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's what radiation is kind of does. Well, it, to be very crude, you know, like you're getting, you know, this high intensity heat. And I, I think that's something too with the radiation that I think, you know, one of the major advances in this field has been like this whole thing of precision medicine, right? And so the radiation even has become so precise where I think in the past, the radiation was more of like a shotgun, right? Like they would just mm -hmm. blast everything and everything within like a certain radius would just be cooked um, because of the radiation. But now the machines are so so advanced and the, the science is so advanced to where like they can get that tumor so precise with radiation now, which really is like night and day from where we were, you know, 15, 10 years ago with radiation of, of you know, certain organs because of the complexity of the disease, but then also the complexity now of the machinery and the sophistication of the machinery, which is just really amazing. So you go through the neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then you get to the stage of where you should be getting a Whipple. Yeah, I did. And it was, um, speaking of like state of state of the art technology, I got robotic, um, where they, they go in through the, the smaller holes instead of, mm -hmm. they don't open the your, laparoscopic laparoscopic yep. robotic. So that, that sounded kind of cool. I didn't get to see any of it, of course, but, uh, it was, it's nice not to have a great big scar, I guess. And it seems, um, like healing probably was quicker and easier than it otherwise would have been. Um, and that it went well. And so they got the tumor, um, clean margins. They, the only reason I'm stage three is, um, two out of 19, um, lymph nodes they found, I guess they found cancer in the lymph node. Mm -hmm. I don't remember. Didn't, wasn't, they didn't put it quite that way in the report, but, um, so yeah, stage three, that was a little disappointing, but it went well, I guess. I mean, yeah, it went very well there, you know, and the only side, the only, um, complication I had was, um, there, there wasn't, there was like a lot of blood and fluid building up, even though they, they left these drains in, but one of them wasn't draining very well. So they opened me up or they, they didn't, they went back in, they made like two more small holes for some reason. And they went back in, cleaned it out, um, looked around to make sure everything was <clears throat> holding together. And then, um, that was it. I felt, I felt nervous about <clears throat> going back in. It was a little scary. You know, because it's just like, oh, things are starting to go wrong now. And, you know, just worried that it was bad, that it was going to get bad. But it was fine. It did um, set me back a little bit. And I still had that NG tube in my nose, which was, for me, was really painful. That tube that goes down into your stomach through your nose. Um, 
so that I recovered from that. I, I spent a week in rehab just to get my strength back from just mainly from laying in bed for, you know, 10 days or whatever it was. Um, that really um, has an effect on your body. Just just being in the hospital itself um, without the surgery, if you're forced to stay in bed all day for a week or more, you start to get weak. Um, so I recovered and then they, they sent me home and I felt pretty good. Uh, I, I had nurses, visiting nurses and uh, PT, uh, physical therapy and occupational therapy. They would all come like once a week, check on me and uh, take my vitals and work with me a little bit. Um, and by the time, you know, that was over, I was, I was pretty much back to normal. And then right away, they, I was planning to go back to work, but then right away they had me back in chemo. And this time, chemo was harder for some reason. And the second time I had chemo, I never really recovered because it went from fatigue, being really tired from towards the end of the, that round, and then continuing to stay tired or get more tired. And then I had a little cough. I didn't think about it much. Um, in hindsight, what was probably happening was, so I tested positive for the flu later, but Probably my, my immune system was not really um, working very well. It wasn't because my white blood cell count was low and my neutrophils were low. And so I, I didn't have like a normal flu with side effects. I didn't have, I had a very mild cough and that was about it. And except I was really tired. So I think my immune system was just laying down and it couldn't put up a, a fight. Um, and then eventually I, that turned into sepsis and I had no idea what was happening and I got um, really out of it. Like my, I just, it's almost like being drunk or high. I, I couldn't think very well. I called my nurse at 2 AM and said, I need help. <laughs> and, and then um, I just called 911, but I was crawling on the floor by then because I had fallen down a couple times and I couldn't get up. So I didn't think I would ever be in that position, at least not uh, at this age. But so I called and then the EMTs came and they, they took me to the ER where they figured out I was having a septic shock. So my blood pressure was really low. That was why I was so dizzy and probably why I was kind of confused. Um, but so they figured it out and then they gave me these medications to raise my blood pressure. And that was the main thing they were doing for me, those fluids and and antibiotics, because <clears throat> I probably had pneumonia as well. Um, I definitely had the flu. So they gave me these vasopressors, they're called. So they're these powerful drugs that constrict your blood vessels and raise your blood pressure. Um, and I was maxed out on them. That, that was it. There was nothing else they could do. I think they kind of told me that, but it didn't really register that like this doesn't work. You're you're gonna die. But that that was kind of where I was. Um, but they did work. My and my body they kept they kept me going until my body rallied and got things got under control, or maybe the antibiotics started to work. And um, so I made it. And um, that was when I was scheduled to come on the podcast the first time. Uh, and I ended up, I was in the, in the uh, ICU, so I couldn't, I had my phone, but I really wasn't up to like sending you a cancellation apology. Uh, so sorry, but that's. Uh, <laughs> no, that's totally understandable. <laughs> you're, you're in the hospital. Uh, you need to focus on your care not, not cancel a meeting or a podcast that we had scheduled. So the, the chemotherapy then where are you now then? So if you, when did you have the surgery? So you had the, so you get the diagnosis in August of 22, you do the four rounds of chemo. What was the rotation on that? Was it every other or was it? Yeah. Every other week. Okay. So then that would bring us probably to like late fall. When, when did you have the surgery? Um, November 30th. So yeah, almost the end of November or the end of November. Okay. And that was uh, what facility? Did you stay in Colorado for your treatment, or did you seek treatment elsewhere? 
Um, I stayed in Colorado. We have a, a really good surgeon here. His name is Tierney. I think it's jo Josh Tierney. And he's in the UC Health group. I, the, I don't remember what the clinic is called. It's Rocky Mountain something, I think. Mm -hmm. um, or that hospital <clears throat> has a different name. But it's in it's in Loveland, which is not far, a 20-minute drive. And since he had a good reputation and he was really experienced with the robotic surgery, I didn't see any reason to go travel further to find a different one. <clears throat> you know, I did question my oncologist whether he was the right for me. Ultimately, he's fine. You know, I just have to kind of drive a little bit. Sometimes if I, if I don't feel like things are going the right way or <clears throat> ask a lot of questions. And when, <clears throat> cause it, like, I thought there would be a discussion of um, the treatment options and, and what are the odds and statistics. And I know a lot of people don't like that. They're, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to know it. But my personality, I'm curious. <clears throat> I want to know. Um, you know, even if it's, it's going to be discouraging, it's it's the truth. I want and like I want to know what I'm up against and what I'm dealing with, and then decide. But that never happened. So they, I mean, they didn't really ask me what I wanted. It was just I was just told this is the plan. And um, I guess I'm glad I went along with it. <clears throat> I you know knowing know what I know now, like my odds didn't improve that much by having the surgery. <clears throat> and I might have thought, you know, maybe I'll just do chemo. I also didn't know how how brutal the surgery was going to be. And I don't want to discourage anyone um, who's planning on having it or needs to have it. But um, it's not a, an easy surgery. It's not fun. I, I won't sugarcoat it. Um, but, I, you know, I got through it. And, and, and then I felt pretty good about it, even though, you know, I didn't. It, it technically could cure me. There is a chance that I'm cured now. And they want to do more chemo just to make sure. So, you know, if I think about it that way, it's encouraging. Not that many people even are in a position to get surgery because they're uh, unresectable or it's already stage four and then there's, it's too late. So I'm, you know, I'm grateful for that. So in terms of the treatment, then I want to go back to that just real quick. So you have this bout. So after the surgery, then you start the chemo. So how many rounds of chemo did you do post? And I assume once you got septic that like that shut down because you, they've got to deal with that. Yeah, I only did two. And uh, so the plan now, I need to call and schedule because they, their scheduler wasn't there when I yeah. went in last week. Um, yeah. So I'm going to go back and try the full Fearnax. You know, I, I insisted that we, monitor everything carefully and and there's another um, medication or drug they can give me mm -hmm. to boost my white cell count and my immunity so they're going to do that and um, i'm just going to be i'm going to be careful you know where i go and what i expose myself to i guess because uh, the flu can, can be deadly to me the regular i mean i kind of knew that i was immunocompromised but in, <laughs> before that i didn't i didn't really understand what that meant yeah he well yeah, I think we, I think all of us as a society, right? Like, look at the last three years, what we've been through, right? And I'm not here to debate like the whole COVID debate, but like, you know, the whole immunity thing. And like, you know, I, I, health is wealth, I always say, right? So, like, the healthier you are, regardless of what you're fighting, the more likelihood that um, statistically that you should bounce back. But now you throw in things like cancer a cancer diagnosis, right? To someone who has a compromised immunity, which cancer does, well, now something like the flu is very serious. It's no longer something that, you know, if you are healthy and don't have any underlying health conditions, you know, live a healthy lifestyle, you should bounce back pretty well from the flu. Is it going to knock you down probably for a couple of days? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I know plenty of professional athletes. We see it all the time, right? Like, look, Michael Jordan, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about Michael Jordan. And I think because the All-Star game was in Atlanta or in Utah, you know, and, he, and they said he played, you know, game six where he hit the winning shot to win the w, uh, the NBA finals. And he had the flu, you know, greatest basketball player probably of all time. 
he still struggled with the flu, right? As as great of a physical shape he was in and mentally, right? So now just imagine someone going through uh, any type of cancer, right? Who has compromised immunity, can't control that. You know, now you get the flu, just think, you know? So yeah, I, I think it's something that maybe, you know, a lot of people don't think about, James, but, you know, clearly once you go through a, a, diagn- a cancer diagnosis, a lot changes, you know, because things are a lot different. And I think something that, uh, you know, I appreciate you telling your story and being open and honest uh, with the struggles, um, you know, because I think we, and, and this is something we've talked about often and probably don't talk about enough. It's kind of like, I, I relate this to like marathoning. Cause I know that well, it's like you do the training, you, 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 you do all this training and then you have race day and then there's this post, right. And you know, this cancer journey that many people go on, it's like, all right, so you fight the cancer and you're pushing, pushing, pushing. And we focus so much on that fight, right. From early detection to treatments, to surgery, all to get to that NED, that no evidence of disease, but everything you do to get to that point, I feel has like this trickle down. And what I mean by that? Well, just because you have the NED to your point, well, now getting the flu, even though you don't have cancer, but your immune system has been wrecked to, to, to shreds because of the cancer, because of the treatment is a big deal now, right? Yeah. Eating maybe is a big deal, right? digestive stuff, especially in this disease. Now I'm talking about pancreatic cancer, right? Like all these things happen. And I think we as a society and also as an awareness group, we, you know, we're so focused on that front end. Like how do we diagnose and treat patients and get them to that NED status, um, you know, where, where they, they, they have survivability, but also then the other piece is like, there's a lot of issues with that post right? Like people like, you know, you get septic, you know, you're in the hospital. That's like, it's not related to cancer, but it is related to cancer, right? Your immune system's beat up. So, you know, I don't think we talk enough about that. So I appreciate you bringing that up and and talking, you know, even to your point, like, Hey, like the chemo was a lot harder. So now you got to get back on the chemo. Yeah. You don't have any cancer, but you still got to do this chemo. That's still going to wreck your body and, and make you feel really cruddy. Yeah, I was thinking of, there's one thing, you know, I had doctors pay attention to that, um, that you are immunocompromised if you're, if you're on chemo, uh, especially, you know, the one I was on and most of them probably. And, um, so just, you know, monitor your health and, and maybe consider, you know, where you go, big crowds of people. And right. And then my oncologist did tell me that now it's safer because there isn't a lot of um, things circulating in the in the community right now. The flu season is over. Um, there's not a lot of COVID or whatnot. So I'm probably better off, but it's also probably in my best interest to stay vigilant. And, you know, I, I put on a mask when I go into the grocery store, which feels a little awkward because most people are not anymore. And I don't care what they think about me. <laughs> my life is more important. That's a a great statement. Um, and, and you're not alone, I think, when you're saying that, because uh, I know many people who have immunocompromised. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. You know, there's been a lot of mask shaming, right, as a, what we can call it, right? But before all this, you know, I mean, people who remain immunocompromised wore masks all the time. Uh, I don't think this is, like, this is not anything new. Like where we are today, like with people wearing masks that are immunocompromised, and that's been happening for years. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 yeah, I get it because of what we went through and, you know, there, there's, and again, we're not here to debate that or to talk about it, but uh, yeah, people who are immunocompromised have been wearing masks for years <laughs> and it just didn't happen over the last two years or three years since this whole pandemic started. So it's kind of silly to think that way for people. And I'm not talking about you, James, but for people on the outside to think like, oh, 
Yeah, you just never know, right? It's the same thing with you just never know someone's fighting cancer just because they don't look sick. And, uh, you know, so, some people, you know, don't lose their hair because of chemotherapy. Um, some people gain weight because of steroids that they give you, right? Um, so, you know, you just never know what someone's going through. So it's kind of uh, small-minded to to assume that it's because of something else and not because someone might have a serious health condition that they just have to really be careful with. Yeah. So don't worry about what other people think. Um, never, never. So then it seems like everything became like a little bit harder. So after the surgery, after the flu and the sepsis and being back in the ICU, so it would, like, I could barely stand up this time when I went home. Uh, so recovery took longer. And, um, and finally, like my digestion was weird, really weird again. And um, learning to how to eat and how to um, keep maintain your weight and all that is is challenging once you've had that whipple and it, you adjust to it and and it seems like your my um, system kind of rebalanced and adjusted as well. So it's you know you can live with it just fine, but initially it's hard to to um, get enough calories to keep, to gain weight and. I'm way lower uh, in my weight than I've ever been since I was a kid. And um, it's not normal. I think I look okay, but at first I felt like I was skeletal. Um, And again, it's not really about uh, appearances, but uh, it's it's kind of freaking to look at yourself and be so, uh, so skinny. Um, So how do, how do you then let's talk about that. And we're on this, like, are there strategies that you've used to kind of get you out of that mindset that you could share with our audience? Because maybe there's people listening that have kind of gone through similar things. I mean, it, I know we're going to get into the writing um, here in a minute, but, you know, what kind of pulled you out of that? Or how do you get that? Maybe you haven't been pulled out of it. Um, it does take some time, I think. But I followed advice. And then I took it more seriously after a while that you have to eat. If you can't eat as much in the size of your meals, then you need to eat more often and try to balance that. And as soon as you start to feel hungry, then you can start to make, cut up an apple or make whatever, make a bowl of cereal. I started eating cereal, which I haven't done since I was a kid. So I'm, my relationship to carbs is a lot different because it's all, it's all good and sugar um, whatever. And, uh, I know some people really preach that sugar is going to feed your cancer and make it grow faster, but I just have to have enough calories. And that's like the easiest way. Um, if I tried to maintain like low carb, no sugar, it, I would never put on weight. So I kind of just, uh, make the best of it and, and have uh, donuts or cake <laughs> if I feel like it, you know, um, and pasta. <clears throat> I'm also so, trying to get enough protein and uh, vegetables and everything. To, I eat more fruit. So have you had any issues? I know this happens often with people, you know, when they start messing around with the pancreas via Whipple, some people become diabetics. You mentioned, you're mentioning sugar. I know like, you know, blood sugar levels tend to kind of get out of whack. Has there been any, you know, I know this is relatively new in the sense because this, if you had the Whipple in November, so, you know, we're not even six months post, uh, just about six months. So has that been in check or has anyone talked to you about that? Have they referred consult to like an endocrinologist or anyone? My blood sugar's never gone too high. It was too low while I was in the hospital. And I think it was both times because the, one of the, effects of that or is um one of the symptoms is uh, anxiety and like being sweaty and anxious and i didn't know but it, it caused me a lot of uh, distress when i couldn't get out of bed and i just started sweating and i was all of a sudden i was really anxious um the second time i was in the hospital that happened and then they noticed like oh your blood sugar is way too low so they made me drink orange juice and, and eat candy or whatever um, so no, I have, I haven't had any diabetic symptoms. Uh, so that's good, awesome. but it's, it was in the head of the pancreas. So I still have the whole body and tail 
or that can make the um, insulin. Yep. Yeah. So let's talk about your writing here, because I know we talked a little bit before we hit record. I know you were blogging. Um, you've got your screen up, and we've got uh, looks like the the bad cancer diaries. Is this something that you've always been invested in, in in writing and blogging? And like, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I've been writing. I think all my, my all my life I was meant to be a writer, but I was kind of afraid of it, intimidated, you know, fear of failure. Um, but yeah, it's I, I've been writing actively for maybe ten years. I have a book on Amazon that I self published, just so I could say I'm an author. <laughs> But you're an author, James. There's, I'm an author. You know, if, if everyone could do it, they, it, you know, if it's easy, everyone would do it, right? But it's not, and I, you know, you did it, so you should be proud of it. You know, you're an author. Yeah, it's a good book. It's it's kind of short. Um, so I'm, I started writing at some point uh, after my diagnosis, and it's for me, it's very therapeutic. I feel like this is, um, you know, I tried a lot of other things in my life to kind of be happier and more well-balanced, but writing is really what, what does it for me. And it doesn't even have to be about my problems or anything related, just writing and even writing fiction. It, it's kind of autobiographical. So it's a way to, to get stuff out. And um, so I started writing about my, just my experiences as a cancer patient and because uh, it was all new and kind of foreign to me and some of it was strange and I didn't understand it. So just kind of writing it first, uh, you know, from the point of view of someone who's really kind of naive to the whole thing. And uh, and then gradually kind of getting up to speed and, and learning and starting to advocate for myself. And um, so that's kind of when it was. And then I started to notice like um, issues with the healthcare system and cancer care and so there's a little bit of a critique in that. And that, at one point I, saw, I said it was cynical. I guess it, in a way it's cynical, but it, I mean, there's some humor in it. Um, but I, I'm just, I'm really curious. And I, so I want to know things. And sometimes what I find out uh, is, can be a little disturbing. And then, you know, a comment on that, but. So yeah, um, I'd, I'd love to hear. <laughs> let's let's dive further into that because that sounds like an interesting point here that that's coming up in this conversation. So you wrote about issues in cancer care. I wrote here, and then you said it was kind of disturbing what you found out. So what was it that uh, that you wrote about, and what was so disturbing? Um, so I noticed some things uh, about the medications in, in particular. Um, so the do like the doctors would change the orders for medications um without talking to me without you know making a, a note about it and and so that would just get get different drugs all of a sudden and you know a couple of times i i thought in my judgment it was dangerous to, to combine that that drug or with the condition i already had so something that was going to lower my blood pressure when i already had low blood pressure that was one example and uh, actually, they're both of the more serious ones were, were about that. And uh, and I could tell, so they get your your medical history and they know all the drugs that you've been on. And sometimes they'll, they'll add those drugs to your orders while you're in the hospital. It, it, it just seems kind of haphazard. It seems a little random. And, it, you know, my impression was like they're doing this like they've got a stack of charts or whatever and they're doing this fast and they're not putting a whole lot of thought into it um that's just my impression from the result and um so you know i would refuse them it's uh, i'm not going to take that pill because i don't think it's a good idea and then the nurses were cool with it um when i explained it why and um, you you can refuse that's not a problem really um but the, yeah, the fact that you're, and then the doctors would be different from day to day where who's on your case. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a different doctor and they're just changing your meds. So, I mean, that seems like a weak part of the system where things can easily go wrong, you know? 
it's like these cracks in the system though, James, right? Like, so here in the United States, you know, we have this, I kind of say pay to play. If you have insurance, you get certain services, right? And I think a lot of it's predicated on insurance. There are standard of care, right? Like there's a, there's a matrix that, you know, if you come in with X, this is, you're, you're going to get Y and Z, right? And I think with cancer care, in particular with this disease, right, there's not a lot of options. So sometimes there's, there's some, I wouldn't say tooling around because again, insurance is going to have to approve everything. But this is a little bit different when we look at like, and I, we've had guests, like we've had doctors from Italy and Israel on the podcast. And, and we've talked about this, right? Like in Israel or in Italy, it's a public healthcare system, right? Regardless of your financial status, you're getting the same care. And regardless of where you go, you're getting the same care. You're getting the same medication, the same thing for that diagnosis, right? I think here in the United States, naturally, if you break a leg, you know, emergency care, you're having a baby, it's pretty standardized. When it comes to cancer, and in particular, I think specialized cancer, uh, like pancreatic cancer, which I, I feel is so specialized and so unique and so different for so many people, like so many people react differently to, you know, the medications positively and negatively, that it's just really hard, right? So you really need kind of that deep dive and deep specialization into that. But then I think the other piece that happens here is like, you know, you have this system where, and I don't have an answer to this. This is just a hypothetical that, you know, we have this public healthcare or we don't have public healthcare. We have a private healthcare system, right? And depending on your insurance, potentially we'll cover certain medications. And then you've got generic medications and you have doctors that go through the system and are trained a certain way in order to react to that, right? And and if you really think about it, like doctors here in the United States are paid to what? See patients mm-hmm. and see as many patients as possible, right? Doctors just don't show up and work nine to five and they get paid the same amount every day. They get paid for the amount of patients they see, the amount of scripts maybe they write, whatever the matrix is, how many surgeries they do, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a surgeon, you're getting paid on volume. So if you're an oncologist, you might be getting paid on scripts. I'm I don't know the answer, but these are questions I think, you know, that we should be asking, right? And I think these are fair questions to ask yeah. our healthcare providers, right? And in particular now, when you're going in for care, you as a patient, and this is this is where it really kind of ruffles my feathers or I really get pissed is when I hear like you're saying like, "Hey, doctor prescribed these meds." I don't think I'm supposed to be on these meds. Really give me an answer why I'm on these meds, but just told me to take these meds. That's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like where like that's like almost like waterboarding, right? Like, hey, you're the patient, sit here, you're just doing this. But there's no rhyme or reason to that. They haven't explained that to you. Uh, but you're supposed to trust the guy. Yeah, it's it's kind of scary. But right? it also like, like my when I had my surgery, I guess my doctor was technically the surgeon and He's doing, you know, he's in the um, operating room 10 hours a day. So he's not really overseeing my care. Like he's not thinking about blood pressure. But meanwhile, he did this incredibly, you know, high tech, cool surgery, uh, very advanced. And and he has a lot of knowledge and skill. It's like you got to carry that through all of all of the care of the patient or you might lose them over something really stupid, (laughs) which is ironic, you know. Yeah, it, it it seems though, James, this seems so easy, but it's also so complex, right? Like, and I and that's something that I have pushed and advocated, and anyone listening, watching, you said this, you were forced. I wrote this down. You said you were kind of forced to be your own advocate, mm-hmm. and here we are, and you know what we perceive as the most advanced civilized country in the modern you know in the world but we have patients that have to advocate for themselves yeah so we perceive ourselves to have some of the best healthcare in the world and we might i don't know i, I you know we may, we might not i don't think we do personally 
I think we're really good at some things. I think there's, you know, just like anything else, there's really good doctors and there's really bad doctors, just like there's really good accounts, really bad accounts, really good at mechanics. You know, we can go down every profession. So, but it's just kind of crazy to me that, you know, uh, that patients sometimes have to really, really get uncomfortable because no one wants to raise those questions because you don't want to feel like a jerk and most people aren't jerks. There are some jerks out there, but when it comes to your care, like you just want to be able, you want to, you want to feel like you're getting the best care and not necessarily have to question like what a doctor says in a bad way. I think it's okay to have, it's certainly natural to and okay to have questions. You should feel comfortable. You should be 120% comfortable with everything that the doctor's saying, and you should not feel uncomfortable asking a question if you have a question. Right. And but it, I never, I don't get confrontation. I'm very non-confrontational, but for if it, if I think something's going to hurt me, I'm going to say, no, correct. I'm not going to take that pill. And uh, I think nurses are actually empowered to advocate for you if they catch something like that. And they're supposed to, some of them do. There's some really, and that was the other thing I, I found is like the nurses are amazing. The good ones, especially they're, you know, that's who you're really depending on for everything you need when, especially in the ICU. And um, a lot of them are, you can tell they care so much and, and they're, they don't have a problem with whatever was wiping your butt or, you know, they're not going to, yeah. um, it's, yeah, their, their job's not easy. Um, no, I couldn't do it. They, they are the lifeblood of the, the, the medical system. I, mm-hmm. I feel, I mean, there's some amazing doctors, don't get me wrong, but nurses really, um, are phenomenal. Um, you know, and, and really, really, really do an amazing job and, and any, world-class center, you'll find top to bottom. And that goes all the way to like the medical porter transportation people, right? The porters, like, you know, they'll be amazing. Um, and you have that alignment. So it's, it's really, really important. I appreciate you bringing that subject up because I think this is a subject that, uh, we hear often. I don't think we, we talk about enough. So these are healthy conversations to have and healthy dialogues to have, I should say about that, because I think what you said is so powerful James, like it's not confrontational. And I think maybe sometimes people feel they're, if they ask a question, it's confrontational. It, it shouldn't be right. Like, again, you should feel comfortable being able to ask the question because you have a question, right? Like that's, right, yeah. that's human nature, right? Like if you don't understand, you ask the question, or if you're concerned about your health, ask the question, right? And so we shouldn't, I say we as the patient population advocates, um, shouldn't have to feel that it is a confrontation um, because it's not. It's just, you want to feel comfortable. You want the answers. You want the understanding, right? It's more the understanding of why is this being prescribed or is this really going to make a difference, right? Should be able to ask those questions. It's your life, as you said, right? Um, I've got a couple of questions here for you as we as we go through this here. I know you mentioned your mom's sister had pancreatic cancer and she was diagnosed younger than you were. So one of the things um, that I bring up often and because of the timing of this, I know genetics has become such a big piece in this whole space. So family history, um, you had an aunt um, who was diagnosed, but was there any other family history and, and did they do genetic testing for you? Um. My, I don't know if she had that mutation or even if they were doing testing back then. I do not. The, the BRCA yep. mutation. Um, yeah, my, I don't, I can't think of anybody else in, uh, you know, my near family that has had cancer. Um, and health wise, health wise for you, you've never dealt with any cancers or anything um, previous to this. No. No, I mean, I had some GI stuff. I had my, um, what do you call it? The, the, the one that they always, it gets inflamed and they always take it out. Gallbladder. Uh, no, the other one. Uh, kidney? <laughs> no, it's part of your um, intestine. It's like a little addendum. Uh, the appendix. That's oh, the appendix. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. 
Yeah, I don't know why I said kidney because usually, <laughs> yeah, kidney you, you like to keep both of them in, but I know you can live with one. But yeah, the yeah. appendix, yeah, can rupture. Yeah. And that gets nasty. Yeah, so I, I had some weirdness with that because it like um it kept getting inflamed and um so my but my white blood cell count wasn't high, so they said you don't have appendicitis, and then finally I said yes, I do because I was just dying in pain, and uh, yeah, they took it out finally. Um, but so other no, than that, nothing. Not, not really. I didn't think I have pretty normal risk factors. And um, it doesn't seem like, honestly, like it matters that much how you live. You know, maybe if it's to an extreme. But, you know, how you eat and uh, whether you smoke and drink and all that stuff. And the people get it. Like a lot of people on, on this podcast and. Um, anecdotally anyway, they, they were, had very clean lives and there was no reason for it. So I got to think of it. It's just like you lost the lottery. You know, there's a lot of things that contribute to your uh, odds of losing. And then if you're just unlucky and think the numbers come up wrong and it's your, your turn, you got it. So, and then, you know, once that happens, it, there's not much you can do other than treat it. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, you bring up a, a, a interesting point. I mean, I think in my experience in 13 years, I've met so many people that have eaten well, been athletic, run marathons, and then they get this diagnosis, right? Yeah. Um, and then the flip side is, you know, I've met people that, you know, just didn't live healthy lifestyle. So did one or the other contribute to that? I don't know. Um, but you know what? This is a free country, so people can live the life that they they decide to live uh, and lead, um, and no one can tell them that. I mean, we do know there are certain risk factors naturally with smoking and drinking, right, and certain foods. Yeah, <clears throat> but foods, you know, eaten at a very very high quantity. So, what's the lesson to all this? Well, hey, if you're a casual smoker, is that going to cause cancer? Statistically, yeah. Is it going to cause pancreatic cancer? Don't know. Um, if you're a casual, casual drinker and what do I, how do I define that by, you know, having a glass of wine once a week is to me casual, but that's my definition. I, I don't know what the Webster dictionary definition of casual is, but you know, so is that going to lead to pancreatic cancer? Probably not. You know, if you're Americans, throwing down. Americans drink a lot. I can tell you. Yeah, like a bartender. There's a lot, there's <laughs> a lot of liquor stores, right? We got, we, in our town where we have our offices, I think there's 15,000 people. I think there's like seven liquor stores, not including the, 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 the supermarkets where you can buy beer. Um, right. you know, so, you know, do, if you drink a 30 pack, you know, every weekend, is that healthy for you? Mm-hmm. Hell no. Um, if you're consuming alcohol, um, every night, you know, a glass of wine every night, is that healthy for you? Probably not. Right. And there's, there's been studies about, you know, red wine and, you know, attributes to that. I mean, there's plenty of data now. I just saw some interesting data on like wearable technology and they followed like hundred thousand people using wearable technology over the last like five years. And, you know, people who drank like, you know, a glass of alcohol, not on a regular basis, but they saw like massive shifts internally to how people were processing sleep, you know, from alcohol because, you know, the Mm -hmm. alcohol keeps you, you know, adrenaline and stuff like that. So they weren't sleeping well. Right. And now, Sleep has been this big thing over the last couple of years where there is a lot of scientific data about sleep and recovery and, you know, how that impacts our bodies. And, you know, I think that, you know, Elon Musk came out and said that I only sleep like two hours a day or, you know, four hours. And people are like, how the hell can that be healthy? You know, and other, other celebrities have come out and said similar stories, you know, and, and, and we just don't know. There's just not enough data on that, you know, and if that's even accurate, if it can be done, but I know there's plenty of data on how important sleep is. To, to restorative cells and, and to putting less stress on the body. Mm-hmm. I think this is what it comes down to is stress, right? You add these stressors into your life and you know what you could eat. I've seen this where you're eating, you're exercising, but you still have inherent stress on your life because of your lifestyle, because of your work, because of your family, because of the choices you make. You may not be drinking and smoking, but you still probably have the same amount of stress that drinking and smoking present themselves with, you know, smoking a pack a day or, or drinking alcohol every night, right? So the more stress that you add on your body, that's certainly going to, you know, have impacts on you long-term. Does that mean you're going to get cancer right away? Probably not. 
you know, but doing something over time, over a long extended period of time, clearly the data shows is not healthy for anyone. Um, but you know, it's, it's this thing, James, where, you know, there is some data out there to your point, you know, in terms of, you know, someone's healthy, they're, they're eating all the right foods, they're doing all the right things and they still get cancer. Like, yeah, it's just the bad luck of the draw, man. And and that's something that we still don't understand. You know, maybe there's a genetic piece or, or you know what, you know, KRAS, the KRAS mutations responsible for like 85% of all the pancreatic cancer cases in, in the world. Everyone has KRAS in their body. So, you know, I remember when I first learned that and I was like, why don't we just eliminate KRAS? Well, you can't because everyone has it. So, you know, what, what's the catalyst to make the KRAS into cancer? You know, like what's that pathway or what's that, that protein that allows that to happen or the cells that allow that to happen? You know, so it, it, we just don't know enough. And that's kind of the frustration from an advocacy standpoint is, you know, to your point, you know, it could just be, you know, you, you hit the bad lottery and, and you know what, I, I'm not trying to be insensitive here, but it's just, it's just bad luck. Right. Yeah. Cause we've seen it. I've seen it in 12 years where people have done everything right and they still get cancers and they still get pancreatic cancer. And sometimes there's just not a reason for it that we know about right now. Well, we know in five years, like through science and precision medicine and all of the great things happening in the science field, possibly, but there's no guarantee to that. But like you said, something with that is like, you can't stop living life. You know, you got to live your life and, and that's so, so, so powerful. I got two questions here left for you, and then we're going to share uh, with our audience where they could connect with you. First okay. one is, given what you've gone through, given the time that you've had um, with this, what's the best advice you would give someone listening on the other side um, if they've just been diagnosed? Um, find an on well, make make sure you have a good oncologist, and then. Um, I don't, for me, it might be different for different people, but I wanted, I wanted to learn as much as I could and I should have started sooner. Um, and then let your oncologist know, and again, this is how I do it, but that you, um, you want to decide and that, that's kind of how I wanted to be treated was, uh, what, what do you want to do, James? Um, these are your options instead of being told what was going to happen. Um, and, but just and being aware, I don't know if you have the capacity to do the research and to learn because there's, um, new stuff happening all the time Your your doctor might not know about the latest thing that's having great success, uh, somewhere in the country or the world. And especially if you have the means, you know, I, I'd say look into all of those best treatments because this is a very serious cancer. Yeah. It's powerful. Um, yeah. Powerful statement. Um, and you know, there's many groups out there too. Um, I'll, a little shameless plug here, you know, not only us, um, but there's plenty of groups out here in the pancreatic cancer space that can help with knowledge and second opinions and stuff like that. So, um, you know, often we talk about that here on the podcast of, you know, accepting support and allowing yourself to get it a second opinion from another group or another doctor, right? There's plenty of groups, plenty of doctors out there that are willing to do that. So, um, you know, we can lead camels to water. We can't make them drink as my mom always says. Um, if the patient's willing to find a second opinion and accept that, you know, that information or accept that fact that they're going to go get a second opinion or get information from another group, um, there's people out there willing to help and, and there's resources, plenty of resources out there. Yeah. That, and one thing I learned is there's, um, there's so many people that are so good that, and they're willing to help and don't be afraid to ask for it. A lot of times they offer, but if, even if they don't, you know, don't be afraid to ask if you need it, you know, and don't just suffer and die because you didn't want to ask for help. It's powerful. My last question here, and, and this is a question, if you've listened to the podcast, you mentioned you listened to a couple of the episodes, so you probably know this one's coming. Uh, it's a loaded question. There's no right or wrong to this. But given your experience, what you've gone through, how do you define the word pancreatic cancer? So for me, um, I say, and I, I did have a little time to think about it, but 
it's it's a death sentence with a big question mark because I, I mean initially I when I thought well I'm toast my time is up um but I you know I went through with the um treatment and the care and uh and then things started to shift and um it became very uh, nebulous you know whether how much time I might have or what you know it's I really hard to know so that opened the door for hope um and then and then these other questions about what what am I doing with my life and is it worth is it worth it you know um is my life worth what I'm using it for you know because I was kind of coasting like being a bartender and a food server um it was fun and and it's nice to make um tips cash tips is fun um but you know i should have been writing more clearly no you know and um somebody was saying that on another podcast today that um you have a mission a reason to that you're here and i think that that mission may change over time it probably does for everybody but you need to be on your mission or or what are you doing here and i've (laughs) I've gotten more metaphysical or I guess more religious since oh, even before, but especially since getting diagnosed with the serious cancer, a bad cancer. It's, um, yeah, I went back to church. Um, I was raised Methodist and there was one right in my neighborhood. And, um, so I went and checked it out. I talked to the pastor and felt kind of comfortable and, Oh yeah, you know something like I I kind of rejected when I was a teenager because I knew everything then and then now I'm thinking maybe there was some value in that. After all, you know, can I find that just having faith, um, turning things over to your higher power or whatever is just it's such a great relief and of you know not holding that all that burden on yourself. Especially, you know, when you're in the hospital, or you're in surgery, like you have no control. What's going to happen is, you know, you, you're unconscious. So and you, you might have a little prayer before that, if, if that's your uh, inclination. Um, so that's been, been a big shift. And I know you talk about that sometimes on the podcast. And, um, and I'm going to get into a whole new topic. But yeah, I mean, if, if you have a capacity, Maybe you haven't uh, revisited that for a long time. You might think want to think about your your faith and and what that may be able to do for you, even if it's just psychological. But you know, now people say they're praying for me. I'm I'm grateful. I mean, I might have rolled my eyes ten years ago. <laughs> it's great. It's powerful stuff, James. Uh, thank you uh, for sharing your journey with us. Someone listening, love to connect with you learn more, maybe talk to you about faith, how to get back into faith or just your experience, maybe read more of your writings. Where's the best place for our audience to connect with you? Um, so my blog, and it's free to subscribe, is uh, badcanceraltogether.substack.com. And then I started a podcast as well. And that one, it's easy to Google. The URL is kind of long, but... Um, Bad Cancer Diaries will get you there in, in the search. And then I have a phone number. You can leave a voicemail for me. And then I'll call you back if you, you want me to. Um, and I'd love to, you know, talk to people, other people, especially if they have pancreatic cancer or maybe had it. In the, well, I'd love to talk to somebody who's cured. That'd be awesome. Uh, anyway, it's 303 578 six seven seven nine and then if you want to email me um jay clark that's my first initial middle name um at badcancer.net not dot com because somebody already had that so dot net and um, i think that's that's it james thank you for sharing your journey with our audience here at the project purple podcast I can't wait to uh, continue to follow you here as on your Substack, and uh, I really appreciate you sharing some really sound advice here. You know, from faith 
to also self-advocacy with our audience because these are topics that are just so, so important for our audience to hear. Well, you're welcome. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to come on and tell my story. It was kind of fun and yeah, exciting. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks for watching. If you follow us on YouTube, make sure to follow us on YouTube and follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to share this episode. Until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Yeah.